Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories, the years, and successes. Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Dr. Daniela Braga. Daniela is the founder and CEO of Defined AI, one of the fastest growing startups in the AI space. She has been the recipient of several awards, including the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Pacific Northwest 2020 Award, number 27, Deloitte Fast 500 2020, number one in the Pacific Northwest region, number 27 in Inc. 5000 in 2020, and Goldman Sachs Most Intriguing 100 Entrepreneurs in 2021. She is a member of the World Economic Forum's Expert Network as a tech pioneer and AI expert in WEF Davos 2022. She's also a YPO and a chief member. Dr. Braga has raised over $80 million of venture capital, making her the woman founder in AI who has raised more capital in the world. Dr. Braga has been appointed to the National Artificial Intelligence Research Resource Task Force, a 12-person body that advises the US president on the AI strategy of the United States. She is also an advisor to the president of Portugal. Welcome. So good to see you. Hi, Shauna. Pleasure to be here. So glad to have you. Okay. I've got so much to cover. I know you're Portuguese. You're from Portugal, but you've traveled everywhere. So what's your favorite country outside of Portugal? Oof, that is a tough one um, because, um, because it depends really on the mood, right? If it's for work, I mean, I love the elegance of the UK and France and Europe in general, Italy, all these these countries. But I love the 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 wild side and the multicultural side of Brazil. Um, I it's always um, I've lived in China. It's uh, it puts you in a mix of. Uh, almost uh, multiverse experiences between the past and the present and the future. And I mean, I, it's hard to say. Yeah. Well, I, I think if I'm going with you somewhere, I think I'm guessing that of all of those, I'm going to pluck out Brazil. So I'm going with you. Oh, yeah. And, and Brazil, I have an AI talk coming up in Rio this year. Oh, I, you should. I should. I can carry your luggage. <laughs> I'm coming. I'm in. Okay. Well, also, as I mentioned, you speak so many languages. What's your favorite language outside of Portuguese? To you speak? know, it is actually Spanish. Um, I think it's, uh, and it took me, I stumbled into Spanish by listening to a poet uh, uh, in, in, my, in my college times. And it, and you know, Spanish is the neighbor country. So we always grow up listening to Spanish and not thinking it, it's thinking that it's almost like a, a more, um, more aggressive language compared to Portuguese was more, which is more melodic, but um, I love speaking Spanish and it's very handy language to speak because most Absolutely. of the world speaks it too. <laughs> yes, I'm jealous. I would love to speak. I was doing Duolingo for a while and I was getting pretty into it. And then of course I lost it, lost uh, my mojo, but love that. Okay, what's your favorite way to, I'm guessing you're not doing this much, but when you do, how do you unwind? Uh, well, you know, I have, uh, since the pandemic, I've got into a, um, a routine of unwinding uh, daily and it, I feel like daily is the right balance although I don't I can't do it all every every day especially when I travel which is going on walks outdoors and that is my way of it's a sort of a meditation with with the with physical exercise I'm pushing myself I'm in nature 
I take my, my Yorkshire toy, small dog, which gives me also a lot of, a lot of uh, endomorphins and so it, it's that, that's my yeah. daily, that's my daily. They say, it, they say walking is very good and also like linked to longevity and health. So that's good. Okay. What are three words that I guess your friends would use to describe you? Oh, my friends. Well, uh, it, non-stoppable energy. They always, they always say that I keep them up too late. <laughs> um, very open-minded, very non-judgmental, um, and very loyal. Those are great qualities. You know, it's funny because obviously I spoke to your best friend and I think those are words that he used to describe you. Oh my God. Did he? Yeah. Well, not before this, but with you, but like maybe when you're, when you were turned, he was talking to me about you. That's funny. Um, if there was a book written about your life, what would it be called? Basically it's not probably the most beautiful title, but something like always after the next uh, challenge never happy with uh, with the current um, always always out of my comfort zone when I'm yeah. starting to settle I have the restlessness to to find another thing to push yeah me. I like that so it's like something with stretch and grit and yes. and excitement I love that um what impresses you <laughs> Mm. Um, what impresses me? Uh, I, I, I am, well, I like the, anything that, that is out of the box, anything that doesn't, that is not status quo, that is not formatted. Everyone or everything that is a completely different, um, unexpected, whether it's a company or a solution or a product with really no judgment across any product and the same thing with people how they uh how they come across and and live lives that are completely out of the box i i just love that <laughs> yeah okay i have two more questions because we got to get to your life i'm so excited um if you could compete at the highest level at something what would it be um I feel like I'm competing all the time. I'm very com competitive since, uh, I mean, what would that be? I, I, I would love to compete in, um, in, a, in the athletic world. I, I was not brought up like that. There was no culture of, um, of incentivizing physical activity. I, I feel like I uh, still today, I push myself, but I, I have not been trained for it. I love swimming. I love, I would love to run <laughs> more, which I barely can. I would like playing games like uh, social games, like, um, but everything high intensity. Um, yeah. I'm yeah. just not, uh, I, I, I didn't get, uh, I wasn't brought up like that. But like I as an athlete. Yeah. And um, okay. This, this question is um, also hard, but maybe there's an obvious answer. What is your biggest fear? um suffering suffering in uh, pain pain physical pain um i've watched uh, my grandmother slowly for 10 years degrading through osteoporosis and for me that was my word that, that was that was that's my worst fear is this slow the great degradation of the body where your mind is sharp, but you can't control your body. Um, I rather die immediately from a, from something quick. Yeah. Um, my, my family, um, we all have the same fear. My parents have told me the same thing. Like if that happens to me, kind of like, give me a pill, like figure it out yes. because that's my worst nightmare. <laughs> And although, I, I completely agree. Although it's also coming from yours. I mean, I'm I'm a true a true believer that you can push and change your body, not to aging, because aging is what it is, but there there's there's aging and there's managing the the pain into it it comes from your will. A lot of the of slow diseases and decadence can be managed with your willpower. But I agree, if if it's something that hits you and 
give me a pill too. I, I some yeah. of those friends know that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So your grandma, tell me more about your family. You grew up in Portugal, both sides of your family, your parents are both from there, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are they still alive? And what was what was that childhood like? Well, yes, uh, doing my 23andMe uh, genetic an uh, analysis, I am extremely boring, 98% Iberian. <laughs> Most of, uh, I mean, generations and generations in living in the same 100 uh, kilometers square meters, it's really uh, very, it was like that. Uh, I grew up with, um, with, uh, with, with in, a, in a house of women. Uh, raised by my grandmother, my mother working as a, a high school teacher, uh, father not in the picture, and with my younger sister. So um, that was the, my mother was a very hardworking woman. She, she uh, divorced in the, she was one of the first women divorcing in a country coming out of uh, the dictatorship of uh, 1974. I was born, I, I should not say my age, but I was born after the revolution, but after 1974, but she, she divorced in the early 80s. So you can see that was in a Catholic country uh, coming out from a very uh, strict, uh, formative, uh, 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 sexist country where women uh, can, are, women don't go to college, women stay home and have the, the roles predefined. That was quite amazing she was yeah. very independent my grandmother on the other hand side uh, did not have that the same luck she was she quickly became uh, my mother took uh, took her under her wing she was a, a, a only child so she raised us uh, me mm -hmm. and my sister mm -hmm. um, so growing up was uh what we nothing was missing we didn't have any abundance but we did, nothing was missing because you had because you had the love, it sounds like, and you had the um I guess the stage set for strong women and love and also just like how to take care of one another and all of those things are kind of the basic human needs, I guess. But also with um without a foundation of somebody saying, like, here's your roadmap, here's how to go when you're meeting you today, right? Like who kind of planted the seed for college and ultimately a PhD? Well, this is the thing. Uh, my childhood was amazing, but started to turn into a very challenging teenagehood uh, because suddenly my grandmother fell ill on a bed for around my age of 10. Uh, I, I took over the house from, uh, from a perspective of... Um, chores and everything and by the age of 15 my mother turns into she, I start to become more independent wanting to see to hang out with friends my mother was very antisocial she never wanted anybody in our house I was the opposite of that full of energy wanting to go out wanting to do sports and my mother turn starts to turn against me uh, and against my sister to a point that uh, today, neither me or my sister speak with her, which is extremely sad. Um, and and my father never in the picture really. So he, he so it, by the age of seventeen, I I was I, I was always best in class. I was uh, very competitive since elementary school and best uh, student since elementary school. So I loved. I had a true passion for knowledge, for learning. Uh, the planting on the on that was, I think, it was more me trying to please my mother, trying to to and my father, trying to see to tell them, "Hey, look at me! I am doing so well. Yeah, can you guys love me? Uh, yes, I I I am doing the best I can, and I am the best, as you can see." And I, it turns out that I had never uh, recognition from them. So yeah. for many years, I was running against that of, or running towards that goal until quickly society became my mirror, the mirror that my parents never gave me because I was getting all these awards. I was getting all the recognition. Uh, but by the age of 17, things got so bad with my mother that she cut me off all money. 
So I was still an, a minor. I could not go to college. And she made it clear that since college was what everything I need, I wanted so much, there was no money. So I started working. So since I'm 17, I make money. I did my college. I paid for my studies. I paid for everything. It was very tough until I came out of college and I got my first proper job because I was always having jobs. What was the job that helped you get through college? So because I was good at what I was doing, I realized that in that high school last year, which was very challenging, I could teach my friends. I could tutor tutor my friends. So I, I was being paid by my friends to tutor them to mm -hmm. get into college. And in college, I faked my age. I always looked older back then and started, uh, applied for private lessons, private school, private teaching. So I was teaching languages. I was so good in languages. I was teaching French and English and Portuguese for foreigners and, and Latin and all of that. And that's, and so I, that's how I made through. Wow. <laughs> so, so resourceful and creative. Um, so it's, how do we say Universidad de, of Porto? Is that how you say that? Yes, of Porto. My and is that, I, I wish I, I had money I to go out of Porto, but I didn't, I had to pay for, so I had to stay in town. Yeah. So you studied Portuguese and literature. And then, um, I guess what propelled you to the idea of like, most people are like, especially when you're trying to make money are just like, okay, I've got an undergraduate degree. Now it's time to go work, but you didn't do that. You were like, how about a master's and a PhD? So because um, since the age of 15, for some reason, my, the climax of recognition was to be a professor in college, in, uni in, a, in, a, in an important university. Um, and that's what I was doing. I, I, I went to a, a degree that I, and really I could have gone to any degree. It just happened. It just so happened that I loved reading. I loved languages. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do something I love, um, but in um, uh, but 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 I my my point my goal was to become a professor, a literature professor. Um, I actually by the age of 19, I was publishing the first uh, journal um, articles uh, sponsored by some of my professors who who were uh, incentivizing were mentoring me to to do that. And I met Nobel Prizes. I met the top of the top uh, writers uh, in the, in, at, at that point. So that, that, that made me think that, yeah, this is, this is it. But later, and so I'm going to tell this story later, mm -hmm. one of these professors uh, started to want more from me than just um, support me, at, support the best student in class. He had a reputation too. But we're talking about late '90s in Portugal. You don't, you don't, you can't file a complaint. Yeah, there is there's nowhere to go. Yeah, in that level of he was the top of the top. He's still alive, actually, very top of the top uh, professor in the industry. So I, I was really uh, devastated, thinking, okay, I'm getting to a point where I, I need to. He was basically saying. That's it. You cannot run away anymore. I can offer you a PhD in Santa Barbara. And I, 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 I'm putting out this to the universe saying, I'm cornered. I'm in a dead end. I'm, uh, what do I do? I'm graduating and I can go to Santa Barbara, but I have to break my values. Or do I, besides it's all disgusting, all of that, or do I, or do I start all over? And the universe brings to me this opportunity to become, to, to, to grab a, a scholarship in a newly started project, a text-to-speech system for blind people in European Portuguese. So basically com completely uh, uh, cutting edge in the moment, uh, European, uh, an European grant. And I got the grant. I was the only person uh, in the in, in an engineering uh, school that they hired because there was not many out of, of in that position. But they did say, you have three months to prove yourself. 
because we don't know what to do with a linguist. I, so I was a, I was hired as a linguist. So if you can find out what you can, we can do with you, and since everybody in Europe are, is uh, hiring linguists in these engineering schools, you you have a job. So three year, three months later, I was submitting the first international papers for the most impressive conferences that still exist, Interspeech and ICASP, and that became my PhD thesis. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> See, you deserved it. You put that, you, you manifested it and it happened. So you worked in academia for a while and you thought maybe you were going to go on to be a professor. And what kind of pivoted all of that toward, I guess, Microsoft? Like to me, that's that's the story. Is, am exactly, I getting it right? Exactly. You're getting it perfect, Shauna. So, okay. so here I am in my environment, in my element, academia, thinking that I'm, I was already teaching. I was doing my research, doing my master's, my PhD, thinking that was going to be, I was on good track for not in literature, but still in academia. So in a more cutting edge thing, there was, this was AI without being called AI back then. Right. You're like so cutting edge. <laughs> I'm like, what was it called back then? It was called speech technologies, uh, in language engineering, uh, natural language processing, which is so still not new. machine learning, machine learning, not machine yeah. learning, not, not, not yet. A, machine learning came not later. yet. Because yeah. because it was rule based, so the thing right. I I did my PhD in rules, which makes total sense because I come from the 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 science of languages, which is all rules. All languages are can be regulated, in fact, and described into a pattern of rules. So I was actually perfect to start. I I learned to code. I I applied uh, the language and the coding to to that, and so that's what I did in my PhD. But later, well, now a few years later, 2010, my PhD was 28, 2008. In 2010, data-driven machine learning, cloud computing came in and changed the whole scene. But before that, Microsoft. Microsoft found me, literally found me, uh, when I was uh, doing my PhD. Because I was starting to publish a lot in my field, um, they... They opened an, an office, a, a language, develop, uh, language development center in Lisbon. There was a big event. One of these big conferences was held in Lisbon, and that's how they met me. And I was publishing a lot. So they basically, Microsoft opened uh, a Microsoft development center in 2005 in Lisbon, which was all at the same time with this big conference. And they were looking for people with an interdisciplinary background precisely my background. So that actually pissed off a lot of my engineer fellows that were applying. I didn't even apply for the job. So actually, Shauna, everything I've gone through, except my first job, I've never applied for a job. <laughs> that's me too. I mean, I, I, that's that's my situation too. I've never applied for a job. And yeah, ironically, and I help people get jobs, but yeah. <laughs> So, so they, they found you, but walk me through that first initial outreach. So it's a recruiter. You get an email, I guess. It was the director, years. the director of the center that was appointed in Portugal, who was also an academic. He was given the charter to develop uh, 26 languages for the first text-to-speech and speech recognition systems for Microsoft. And he wanted to have his, and this was Microsoft. Uh, so Redmond had the speech recognition modeling team. Beijing had the text-to-speech modeling team and Portugal was having the language expansion charter. So that's how he, so he, he approached me. It was about, he, I remember very vividly one uh, lunch, uh, he, he, he was literally trying to convince me. I was like, no, 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 I'm very well in academia. I'm about to finish my PhD. No, I'm, I don't want to work in industry. And he said, look, Daniela, I'm going to save you from academia you're not understanding i come from academia too you will never have to fight for budgets like this which was not totally true but indeed it was a different fight in terms of budget level and you can finally have all the resources in the world to develop what you're working on for so much so many so many years and yes. that's that's that was the selling point of course salary was better too but somehow growing up in portugal uh, companies had or private sector had this um, 
misconception of being uh, unsafe and secure jobs because people will prefer to work like my mother for the entire career in as a teacher because it was stable and but that that, that was the, the thing so for I me, see you had it in your mind that one was a secure thing and one was too risky not. yeah <laughs> so you were in Portugal for a while and then that job moved you to Seattle and was that was that a well, proposition to China first oh to China and then eventually I guess Bellevue yeah. Washington I and know. were you were you completely open in that kind of Daniela adventure way or was it like totally freaky no no, my God, no. It was so the first four years I was employed by Microsoft Portugal, uh, traveling the world. It was my element because the other thing is I always wanted to travel. And I found a way already in academia to travel through research. And uh, the moment I would publish a paper, I knew that um, the university would have to pay for me to present. And it was awesome. Uh, I, I discovered uh, what I what we what I used to call scientific tourism. I would be able to go to exotic places, present with Microsoft. Took it to another level because we were developing twenty six languages. So I had to recruit voice talents in twenty six geographies, including Brazil and Norway and Iceland and Catalonia. Oh, so cool. And I had to go to those places to to voice cast them and to and to and to kick off the recording so it was uh, japan korea it was awesome so by 20 2008 when i graduated my phd i started having uh, a direct offer to go to beijing which was my phd field they were building in microsoft uh, china the text speech voices for microsoft but at that point, so I did go a couple, I would go every quarter, once a month or something, every quarter, one time, not once a month, at some point, some point spent a month there. And I remember clearly saying, there's no money in the world that will ever move me here. <laughs> because we're talking about Beijing before the Olympics. Yeah. And it was a completely different world. Uh, the After the Olympics is still a challenging place, but it was developing world, very challenging, a lot of pollution, um, uh, animals in the streets, all sorts of things. Uh, but the reality is by 2009, I had my first baby and only baby. I had my girl, uh, my daughter, and... In 2010, they came back like, Daniela, you, we need you. And I'm yeah. like, okay, my daughter is one year old. I had her. I'm going. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. And so you were there, um, you know, Microsoft all in all about, I guess, almost seven years or a little around seven years. How would you describe that culture? Like, I guess, how was it when you arrived? How would you have described it after those seven years? And how has that informed the culture that you've built? Microsoft was fundamental in my upbringing as a, as a professional, as an entrepreneur, as a leader. I can only say amazing things. She made Microsoft was very aligned with my value system of multiculturality, of, uh, of accepting uh, every any background as long as you work hard for it because we... We in Europe we were under the impression that you had to graduate in math and or in engineering to get this certain type of job. At Microsoft, you would have people with no college degree in uh, level sixty-five, uh, which was principal level back then, and that was that was like completely changed my my view. Anybody yeah. actually this this was so different. Um, I've learned to ship products in a global scale. I've learned to um, still uh, convince. So that's also where I learned to pitch budgets to because every single thing as my 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 specs and my products were attended by eighty people. the The whole group was initially eighty people, then three hundred a few years later. And in the 300 stage, when I when I was already in the US, uh, I had almost a third of the population of the, of the speech group attending my spec reviews. The spec reviews are those things that basically sign off a product, 
a budget, a timeline. This is really the best teaching for a company. In fact. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so you, your, your takeaway was that it was like a net, net, amazing, positive work experience. And um, how was it as far as um, mentorship? Were you able to seek out mentors or did you, did they come to you? And also, were you able to mentor others? So my, uh, depending on depending on the place. So and again, my experience was radically different. Even though they used to say one Microsoft, it's really not one Microsoft. Every place is different. Even though everybody's under the brand, uh, Portugal was a sales subsidiary where we had a completely full. Uh, we were the research group inside the sales, so we were aside. Nobody was. We were pretty much untouchable. Doing. Uh, almost everything we wanted and 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 doing a lot of experimental work even though we had to ship to both Redmond and Beijing um, in Beijing um, it was a completely it was very very male dominated it was a, a development group I was the only white woman and white person in fact um, 14 hours a day of work very intense and no um and 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 I, but one thing i appreciate from that that is that i thought i was i thought i was tough but getting there oh my god i cried many times in the bathroom for all the confrontation i had with my boss who clearly i was a challenging employee and today we are friends but he gave me a hard time to basically you gotta follow rules you gotta uh, do the metrics you got and and this for me in China this following of rules and fitting in the culture and it was so foreign and very painful but I've yeah. learned the discipline and yeah. also the um there's there I've learned I've learned many beautiful things about the Chinese people they were very given one one night, I always tell this story. One night in the early days, this was November. I just had moved. It was freezing, maybe like minus uh, forty degrees Celsius, which is a lot. In uh, and and I'm coming out of the building at midnight, and the 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 cabs, the cab line, no cab would take me home. Um. And I come back to the to the building and I find one of my colleagues still working there. And I'm like miserable and tired and hungry and, and cold and asking him, no one takes me home. I have no idea how to get home. I'm so tired. Can you help me? If this was in other places, people would not even be in the building. This guy not only takes me there, takes me to the cab, takes me, takes me home. It was a new building, hard to find. And it just never met me. And I had so many other manifestations of things like that. Situations where I couldn't even communicate with my landlord. Uh, situations where I had to uh, grab cash from someone because the bank was not, I couldn't get cash from the bank. And these people were like, treated, treated me like family. That's so nice. That's so nice. I love that. And so if you were, you know, I guess if your daughter, I know she's 12 now or 13, 13 she just had her 13th birthday. So she was right out of college and thinking about, Hey mom, like I'm thinking about a startup or maybe thinking about Microsoft or maybe she had a couple of years of experience. What advice would you give her? Um, if she's thinking about a large company like Microsoft, because sometimes it's like, I've never worked at a company that big. But part of me thinks I couldn't hack it from a like how to deal with the politics and how to navigate just such a big monster corporate America. Um, how how was that part as far as navigating the size and and advocating for yourself to, I guess, propel your career forward? So the the real politics at Microsoft happened at the headquarters. That's when I realized they were really happening in the headquarters, not not before, not in the subsidiaries, even though absolutely there's some of it, but I could easily navigate that by uh, in, involving everybody in um, or making them be part, making them feel that they're part of the decision or part of the of the, the solution of the solution. The real politics was here, and that's when um, that's when I lost uh, hope on the middle management. 
The, mm-hmm. What I realized was that there was a, a big, and I, I started seeing that too in China. Um, Microsoft has these stars a little bit in the above the middle management, and they are, for the most part, really accomplished, really sharp, really bright people. But they they have a middle layer that of people that don't move the needle. Uh, this is what this is what I hear. This is exactly what I'm talking about, and I hear this you at all actually. all the time. And they because there's so much, things. yes. And this is what I hear, Danielle, and I hear that it's also because it's such a an organization of outsourcing that there's a lot of just outsourcing where there's less doing and more outsourcing at that level. I don't know if that's true, but it's yes. curious. Like, how do you even navigate that? That's a, probably a whole other conversation. How, you, how yeah. I learned to navigate that. First of all, I was excellent at my job, even though I had to. I, I so what I I was very good at networking. Networking is important. Is making yourself visible to the people on the skip skip level, which is not something that uh, even though it wasn't. Um, this was definitely not okay in a lot of locations I was at. I I still ignore them because that always took me to be visible for who I am. Uh, even so, there's an unspoken, there's a spoken uh, uh, theory that you you can always uh, ask for skip level meetings, but your managers in the unspoken way tell you not to do so because you're totally. So there's that. I did that very well. Uh, but the other thing is that, you know what? It's okay, even though it felt shitty back then to hear, especially other women telling me that uh, there's that I'm not that good as I think, that you that I will never get to this or that place, that uh, even though I had all of that, um, that's the world we live in. And if we can't take... Uh, a slap in your face, if, whether it's um, uh, right or wrong, or or truthfully or not truthfully or unfair, you got to be able to take a slap and stand up. Yeah. So I've learned a lot there. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that you're passing some of this on to your. I'm whenever I'm doing these podcast interviews, I always listen as as I am sitting here as another CEO and as a business leader, but also as a mom. You know, because like every week there's a new thing with one of the kids and, you know, you're thinking about lessons around the killer instinct and grit and obviously kindness and all those fundamental values that you want. But there is something that's slightly unteachable around picking yourself back up like that's just like you just have to keep doing it because life is hard and and yes all of those things and understanding so, where yeah. those, those comments come from from their yes. own securities from their yeah. own all sorts of things so everyone's got their own stuff yeah so you left in 2012 went to voice box technologies tell me about that company and how i guess when you're making career decisions um in general uh what lens are you looking through what what um what different attributes are necessary for a company or a job or an opportunity to have in order for you to say yes that's for me so I I left because Microsoft was going through reorgs every three months at that at that time, and I thought it was too much instability when I was being uh, when the world was popping in the AI world and they were just in analysis paralysis of reorgs and reorgs and reorgs. So that that was the last few years of Balmer or the last few months of Balmer. Unfortunately, that was what happened. Um, I moved to a company that I was exploring already. Uh, to be uh, the natural language uh, understanding uh, piece of the conversational AI that we at Microsoft could were trying to build, but we missed the, the opportunity to Apple and Watson at that time. And so in 2011, Apple launches Siri and Watson, and IBM lo- launches Watson. And we, we thought we were top of the world and, and we were suddenly two years behind, we Microsoft. And so I was uh, figuring out a, a partner, and Voicebox was one of those partners that I was mm. figuring out, how to integrate the conversational piece, the text conversation, because the voice, we had it, 
into the into Microsoft. So that's how I met these guys. And with all the turmoil of every reorg, three months, three months, I said, okay, I'm, I'm done. And they and they suddenly uh, start to tell me. And actually, they did it. Apple was uh, tried to hire me. Google tried to hire me, but I just had moved uh, every year before to a different continent. And I was just settling in one year in in the U.S. with a baby. I thought, you know what? I'm gonna now take a breath and take a job here and instead of moving again. Yes. And so I took this this job with Voicebox, which was wonderful for a couple of reasons. I've learned what it is to survive in a in a company that doesn't have the cushion of Microsoft. Yeah. We were a twenty year old company, family owned business, which is also something I would never do because I've learned not that I shouldn't do because you can't raise money with a family business. That's uh, just the way it is. Too much complication. Uh, also learn uh, learned the, how resilient they were to get there. They had a couple of very high-profile customers, Toyota, Samsung, and demanding customers that I, we had to deal with. And I had just so much more freedom to explore new platforms. Uh, I, I come from... Uh, I, I'm hired as a senior speech scientist, and some, and the six months later, I was director of data science with 15 engineers reporting to me. Wow! <laughs> this is also report. This is also using the skills I use at Microsoft, how to sell a point. Yeah, yeah. So, but but ultimately, not the place for you. And so, I'm curious, like while you're there, um, you know always it's it's so fascinating to me like how somebody gets the courage to start the company that obviously you started defined ai but also the idea um the funding like walk me through all of it what was the original idea who did you tell first what was so, the response like so tell me everything fact, i had to be i started to go from less comfortable waters which was microsoft to voice box to, to be more to comfortable like, to, to oh, buy yeah. it's completely yeah upping the game on on less yeah. comfort yeah because i could have stayed at, at voice box and be right. in another six months but as i was having more freedom to explore the actually one of the one thing that was critical was the fact that in that year of 2012 or 2013 i think i was invited by university of washington to give um a masters uh in uh, which i had to ask voicebox permission to do a masters in uh, natural in, in crowdsourcing for speech and natural language processing and and i i convinced my bosses by saying look um I'm going to recruit people for our company. See, this is how it's useful for me to do this. And the reality is by doing so, I've I had the opportunity to survey the market, understand the state of the art, really, because I never had the time to do that. And that's when I saw a huge opportunity to create a crowdsourcing platform, which was how Define AI started, a factory of data using crowdsourcing, at that point, only Amazon Mechanical Turk existed. Very poor reviews. My own experience, my own experience at Voicebox using vendors was terrible in terms of consistency and language coverage. And I thought, and I knew that Google and my, I mean at Microsoft, my last assignment was managing fourteen million dollars per year of budget for data, for which we couldn't even spend half of it, which is when I proposed to my leadership. Let's create a proper crowdsourcing platform. And they said, mm, just spend the money and fast. Otherwise, we're going to lose it for next fiscal year. And I thought, brilliant. So this was brewing already since those times. Voicebox gave me the permission to survey the world. And that's when I realized that there was a business opportunity. So by 2015, I set up a date on the calendar. August 13, and I incorporated the company. <laughs> and I, so I, I, how did and you I come quit. up with the name? And I quit right after I quit. Okay. So, how did you come up with the name? And also, um, you know, just like I guess it's probably easier to describe AI than like blockchain, but sometimes 
you know, because I don't know who's listening, let's just do like AI for dummies. So AI is an artificial brain. It's it's like it's simulating a, a, a human brain artificially. So it's mm -hmm. an artificial brain. So we basically simulate all the neural networks that we, that AI started with is, is a, a replica of our neurons and how these uh, connections in our brain are made. Now, what boosted AI in 2010 was cloud computing, because instead of having one brain at a time, you now are dealing with a, with a hundred brains in parallel and all consuming data. So the, 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 the way these new brains with new connections are making decisions and the, and the speed and the power and then now chat GPT, it's, uh, it's, it was never possible with, um, but that's, that's exactly what it is. It's a simulation of a, a human brain. Wow. And so specifically, what does defined AI do? And I know that you said in the beginning it was um, crowdsourced AI. Crowdsourced data. Crowdsourced data. 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 Um, and so what does the company do now? What types of companies are you working with? And what are some examples of the ways that a company would work with you? So seven years later, we are the largest marketplace of training data for AI. We think about this as uh, we are like a store of data uh, and you want to build a voice recognition system. You want to build, um, you want to build a, a, a facial recognition system uh, or, or, a, or, or, a, or anything that has to do like a generator, a generator of, of, of conversations like ChatGPT now you have to rely on a bank of data that is machine learning ready. So we started by, uh, so we, this is what we are today. It's a off the shelf data bank where we are no longer the only producers of data. Uh, we have still our factory of data, which is our crowdsourcing way of doing things. Not every data is crowdsourceable. If you think about tabular data from Finance, you can't you can't crowdsource that, or from the from the weather forecast, you don't crowdsource that. You, you, so we have partners that bring diff, different sources of data, or or the energy in a building, how much the energy you're, you're spending in a building, to builders of AI. So we sell data to the builders of AI. Which another an assumption I made was that the world was going to build AI, everything was exploding with AI. But the reality is. Only the United States and China build AI. The rest of the world buys AI. Mm. So this is what took me to from this line of product to creating end-to-end -end AI models that people can buy because otherwise the rest of the world will always buy. So this is why last year we won a government, a big government deal, 34.5 million euro deal with the government of Portugal to build conversational AI, which is all, all full circle coming together uh, for the low digitally resourced languages. As I call them, they are no, I mean, languages in the markets beyond GDP 15, basically the top GDP 15, everything beyond that is what I call low digital resource languages because the presence in, in the internet is not the same as English and Chinese and and Hindi and all of those things. And that's where um, conversational AI for those markets is important. Mm -hmm. And so are there certain, is it kind of like sector agnostic? Like you can cover this for all sectors. And if so, I did read the, the sectors that you're in right now specifically. And so um, without naming your clients, can you give me an example? But I can name some clients. Absolutely. Okay, so you ask maybe, me maybe, clients. maybe give me a couple of examples of a couple of clients and how they use defined AI. So we, we have now three lines of product in the, the biggest market, the biggest line of product today and the, the best uh, model, business model and so on is the marketplace. So clients are, they were always these clients is the typical big five, the Amazons, the Apples, the, the Microsofts, uh, IBM, um, Meta, all of the big five traditionally, which still are, uh, 
But with the opening a marketplace, non-exclusive, which was a disruptive measure that I introduced in the, in the world, which so far everybody wanted exclusive data. And until data became more in demand, on demand and less critical to be exclusive because the prices were, I mean, for the, if you need to buy a lot, you need to go down on pricing. So that's when I introduced this non-exclusive concept on the marketplace so we can resell the data. And now we are able to also resell to everyone that startups, scale-ups, uh, Deloitte's, uh, all the companies that traditionally were not able to build or were not building. And now wow. they are. Interesting. And what kind of products are you going to be introducing going forward? We need. I always wanted to be a global company, and and we are global in headcount. Where we were not global in markets. I mean, initially, I opened an office in Japan because our first seed round was led by Sony. Sony, another client of ours. So it was always the big companies. But now we have companies like Synthesia, who is building the coolest avatars. I have one built on Synthesia, and so this is this is what we're we're dealing with now. So in uh, so conversational AI is the first line of product outside the data. So it's an end-to-end -end solution. Why does it make sense to us? Because we have the data. So we have the data, we have the languages and the 100 language coverage and 100 markets. We have the factory of data. We can continue to simulate the data. And the technology is the only thing that, uh, technology is the only thing constant because the data uh, is, is changes according to the domain, whether it's a consumer product or not, whether it's a, a, language, a different language or not. Um, so, uh, but we we want we are bringing up conversational AI for consumer products. So the first one is in enterprise, which is a different thing uh, to deal with consumer products or not. So, uh, conversational coming next, conversational AI. So this is conversation for enterprise, for custom support, for uh, automate, automation of contact center client support. This, this is already in. The, second, the next one that we're working on is for the adult world industry, for gaming in the adult world industry, mm. uh, and, for, um, and for social robots. So, wow. So social robots, where it's for aging population or for children it's a whole world of wonders really uh, the world is the world is nuts i mean it's changing so quickly you're right in, you're right in this world so crazy tell me about um two things well lots of other things but tell me about the business model how does the company make money so uh, we we have three product lines in the factory of data. It's a services business. So we we you a customer asks for um, uh, ten thousand people selfies uh, in the last year, ten ten pictures of it uh, in the last ten year in the last year camera roll. This is one type of data. It's a service. Uh, if they want it exclusive, it's it's we pay they pay per 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 person or per picture. It's just, it's something like that, uh, or per hour of voice or per conversation. It's a it's it's like that. In a marketplace, they pay in a bulk, and it's it's a subscription because the marketplace is just like Netflix. You have access to all the data there, depending on your subscription, and and it's always refreshed. You always have new data coming coming in. And that's a new business model that we initiated two years ago. And it's now more than half of our revenue stream and very healthy gross margins. Investors are happy with that. Oh, I'm sure. Well, speaking of investors, I know, um, obviously, we all know, or at least women for sure, paying attention to the fact that, you know, women get, I think it's probably still 2% of VC capital that's raised. Um, you've raised a shit ton of money. How much have you raised? 81 million. 81 million. Um, how was the fundraising process? And are you planning to raise again? Where are you in that whole cycle? You know, I even like to think that I've raised 81 million from VCs and 14 million last year as a grant, which is a better money than an equity grant, uh, than equity from the Portuguese government. So that, that's what I do. I raise money. 
<laughs> besides creating companies. So for you, it was easier, yeah. I guess, than most women, or was it a really challenging experience? Or like, what are, how was that? I would like to start saying that it's never easy to raise money, whether you're a man or a woman. But for women, the numbers speak for themselves. Only 2% of women get access to VC capital. Uh, and for me, I, I have to say the following. I use the technique uh, which my male peers, first of all, raising cash for me was always uh, a 5x effort bigger than my male peers. And I know that from conversations. Um, also, uh, um, not having any mentor there, uh, I, I I got screwed on a lot of these deals uh, personally. So I know that. that that's what they do if you don't know what, what you're doing. Um, the other thing is KPIs, when the investors are looking at you, uh, by the seed time, I had to. I had revenue already. My first uh, uh, seed was a million raise and at five million valuation. And I remember a five million valuation, which is only a five x. My male peers in AI were getting a 10, 20x. So this is the other discrimination they do to women. Uh, and I had to to have customers, which I did. I had new ones already. I had. Um, I, I it was my first customer sign. I had Google, I had Microsoft. I was very quick at closing the first couple of 250,000 in year one. But my male peers get to series A when they raise 10 million, 12 million with no revenue and they get it. So this is, this is what we're talking about. But that didn't discourage me. It just gave me a lot more work and a lot of personal choices to basically not having a partner. I chose to not have ever a partner, to uh, do my best raising my daughter and and limiting my social life to in a calendar. I have social time in a calendar and that's it. I can't do more and that's it. Yeah. So, well, whatever you're doing, you, you seem like you're doing something right. I know that you've had, as we all do as leaders, um, ups and downs. And I guess some of those have been probably around um, the biggest challenge that people have. You grew really quickly. I know you doubled your business, um, I think, revenue-wise and size-wise, as far as employees in 2019, right before the 2019, pandemic. 2019, no, we went from $2 million in 2018 to $20 million in, in 2019. And oh, okay. it's wow. a bunch of money. That, that's when you start thinking, okay, we are not ready for this. And, so, and our investors say, you have to hire the top of the top of corporate world people. And yeah. that was a mistake. That was a mistake. So how was that for you as far as um, what challenges did you face and how did you recover from those challenges? And where are you today as far as kind of um, the culture and the culture that you're hoping to build going forward? So it took me, then the pandemic hit in 2020, uh, which I still was very lucky to close uh, my Series B of 50.5 million. Um, in 2020, in the, right in the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, what did that do to us? Gave us a, a false se se sense of comfort uh, where I hired what I was told to hire, high profile corporate people that never really were rolling their sleeves on a scale up on a startup that were used to ask for more and more resources instead of actually always watching for the results and the KPIs. A lot of politics started to emerge because corporate people bring what they know best, politics. I'm talking about leadership and didn't help either the fact that we raise all this capital and I barely could have my both my I had leadership in both sides of the Atlantic in the in the US and in Portugal, Portuguese and Americans, not being able to even be together in person because everything was closed. I was the only one able to to move from place to place because I have two passports. I couldn't. I was mm -hmm. never. Yeah, was that's always. a huge challenge. So when and then people start having mental issues. Um, mental health issues through the pandemic, the employees themselves, 
uh, all uh, unprecedented. Clearly, my leadership could not handle that, could not handle, was a, a mix of protecting them, but also uh, continuing to request more and more resources. So leadership moved a couple of times. Um, uh, the this this uh, the, the the cultural abyss became bigger because people could not be together, and in, it's a very different thing being face to face or not. Hundred percent. I mean, we we doubled from we were about one hundred people and we went up to three hundred and sixty at some point. Most people never saw a soul, a living soul, because they were hired online and they couldn't come to the office. So I think the challenge was together, it was always people, but together with the pandemic, which, and all the great resignation point at some point, oh, yeah. people questioning yeah. all their lives, coming in and coming out. Yes, so that tough. was a very tough time. And so where are things now and how are you feeling about the culture. Are you guys dispersed? Are you in person? So uh, we had to, we we only have one open office. We had four offices. Now we only have one open office because everybody is remote. We end, ended up allowing people to be remote because uh, we really couldn't win that battle anymore. Um, and uh, so the, it's the Lisbon office, which is the only physical office. And it's also the majority of the population. Uh, it's there. They still don't come to the office. It's it's horrible, um, and 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 you know where are we? We we went through a very uh, tightening. We we hired an amazing CFO who put uh, who put everybody measuring KPIs, and so some people liked it, some people didn't. Uh, yeah, that's necessary attrition. But the people who don't, you don't kind of want them anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you were to, I guess, here we are, 2023. If if we're in 2028 and you and I are sitting over a glass of wine or maybe champagne and we're looking back, um, how will you define personal and professional success for your life? You know, I am never... So per personal success for me is is the of course it has an it has to do with recognition and i always thrive for being the best at what i do so there is that angle of being the expert in a field this is what i think that's also the compensation i found as a woman to overcome the the the, the weaknesses between brackets that we women are born with so I'm very proud of that part. I think I am already there. And so I want to continue to, to be that, that uh, expert. But it, it's not the money, believe it or not. It's always, it's for me, the impact. Now and, and probably five years from now, I understand that just by the fact that I am walking in a room, I change, I can, I, I know the impact I have in changing a person's route, even in terms of whether I, whether they come work for me or they're not coming work for me, they, they, something changes in their perception in the way they want to carry on their life or start a business or change uh, a status quo that is uncomfortable or they're miserable with. And that is for me, for me, it's success, I think. I love that. So just being kind of an inspiration for others and, and somehow touching them in a way that inspires them. And so you said that you're taking these walks. Are there other things that you're doing to kind of um, equip yourself? I know you're kind of putting on your calendar, your social. What else are you doing to set yourself up for efficiencies and success because you're so busy and everybody wants a piece of you? Yes. Um, and, and extra thank you for being on the podcast. <laughs> My pleasure, Shauna, because you you and I have so much in common. I, I love people like that. Uh, a lot of things, I was always very spiritual, which is a paradox coming from uh, a science background. Uh, but the, I'm more and more in tune with um, with the with the energy level, with uh, with the with listening to your body, with listening to the how how energies around you impact you and you impact those energies. 
um, and all the small things that help balance and keep you in balance, uh, body, soul, and emotion and spirit. Uh, this is not a, this is not religious at all. It's really um, meditation sometimes, which I'm not super uh, uh, accurate with that. But it's uh, understanding the impact of. Uh, uh, objects around you, the the, the crystals, uh, uh, certain the a lot of these these new things in the wellness world mixed with spirituality that I am learning more and more and really uh, I think it makes a huge impact in how I manage more and more workload because the workload I thought I could oh, I could never I thought I was already at the top and you can always do more if you actually yeah. manage everything else in a yeah well I think I think you're doing great okay my final question for you is what fuels you ah uh, creation I need to be always creating things creating um creating products creating um creating products creating companies creating new new ideas but ideas with uh, execution um, knowing, meeting more and more people outside of my field that I know that we can, that that and it's I do it with AI, but I'm bringing AI to the uh, me to the entertainment world, to the gaming world, to the to the social world. So bring and I have the uh, opportunity to meet amazing people from completely different backgrounds that together fuel more and more and spark more and more ideas. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.